the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor and comedian Billy Eichner. You likely know Eichner from his hit show, Billy on the Street, which saw him roaming around the sidewalks of New York City berating his fellow New Yorkers with big, important pop culture questions like, who's a better actor, Meryl Streep or Glenn Close? Who would you rather have sex with, Paul Rudd or Chris Evans? And lastly, when Matt Damon daydreams he's running for Senate, what state does he imagine he's in? That's still my personal favorite. But you know, at the heart of that show of Billy on the Street is Eichner's very real love of movies and the actors that populate them. Growing up in Queens, he always dreamed of starring in one of those films that he watched with his parents as a kid. Pretty Woman, Dirty Dancing, When Harry Met Sally. And sure enough, four decades later, that dream has now come to life with a new film called Bros. In it, Eichner plays a serial bachelor whose emotional unavailability is tested upon meeting his match. Here's a clip from the trailer. So what's happening? Didn't you guys have an announcement? This is a little unexpected, but we are in a thruple situation. Yeah. You're in a thruple? Let me tell you what's progressive now. Being alone. I love my life. I love my freedom. I love my independence. That's kind of sad. That I don't want to be in a thruple? I don't even want to be in a couple. Oh my God, that's Aaron. He's very hot. 
Gay guys are so stupid. I know. But we've been smart enough to brand ourselves as being smart. It's our little secret. You met a guy? I don't think I'm his type. He's like gay Tom Brady. What are you into? One of these ripped idiots with no opinions? No, I'd like someone who's physically very frail and won't stop talking. And I bet he's as intimidated by you as you are by him. I'm down for whatever. Yeah, I can do whenever and I can do whatever. Cool. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Now I have to go to a Pride party and you're both too old to be in the pool. Somebody. Oh my God, do you guys remember straight people? Yeah, they had a nice run. That was a clip from Bros, which opens in theaters across the country September 30th. Now, the film marks the first time an openly gay man has co-written and starred in a major studio film receiving wide distribution. Eichner did not set out to make history, but he's done it anyway. Of course, we talk about this special moment in Hollywood for the LGBTQ plus community, but we also discuss making a big studio comedy alongside Nicholas Stoller and Judd Apatow, his early comedic influences, the legacy of Billy on the Street, the importance of his parents, and how he platformed himself until the industry finally caught up with him. And thank God they finally did. This is Billy Eichner. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good, chaotic, excited, a lot going on in my world. There's a lot going on in large part because you have this new film, which I know you've been working on for a few years. It's called Bros. And I just want to start with the opening scene where we meet your character, Bobby Lieber, who's a single workaholic host of a podcast sponsored by Career Donkey. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, um, I feel personally attacked, but I, I do hope Career Donkey becomes a sponsor of this show by the end of our conversation. <laughs> I think that's a pretty likely possibility. Okay, there's an outside chance. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you could relate, though. I mean, you're, you're really someone who could relate to a movie about a <laughs> podcast host. <laughs> well, it's true. But when your character is not podcasting, he's spearheading an LGBTQ plus museum in New York. He's doing all these things. His professional life is thriving while his personal romantic life is struggling. As you started to play Bobby, this overworked, chronically single gay man, how much was Holly Hunter and broadcast news on your mind? Oh, a big inspiration. I love that movie so much. Um, I, also, I wouldn't say chronically single because that makes it sound like he's desperate to be in a relationship and that he's some profoundly lonely man. I mean, of course, he has lonely moments, but I think both of these characters in the movie, me and my love interest, the character's name is Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane. And I, what I loved about the idea of the movie is that both of these characters are 40-something men who pride themselves on not needing a relationship and are a bit judgmental of those that do and that might be codependent. They both pride themselves on being emotionally unavailable and emotionally impenetrable. 
and they have their friends and they have their careers and they have sex with other people, but they do not need that old-fashioned romantic relationship to fulfill themselves. As someone who does pride myself on, you know, for the vast majority of my life, I've been very self-reliant. Um, I've been very self-possessed. I, I, I think I've been pretty self-aware. And I thought the idea of someone like that sort of helplessly, unexpectedly falling in love with someone. And yes, that is similar to Holly Hunter in one of my favorite romantic comedies, Broadcast News, which is from the 80s. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, what you expect to happen in that movie doesn't happen. And it feels very human and very real. And I've rarely seen gay men, openly gay male characters, in comedies especially, but really in any Hollywood content, especially mainstream Hollywood content, for lack of a better word, where you had a, a character as confident as Holly Hunter's character is at the center of that movie. I mean, we know she's a little brittle and broken underneath the surface, and she doesn't have her shit quite as together as she would like people to believe, but she is so smart, and she is so quick, and she is so accomplished, and no one can really beat her at what she does well. Yet, she still falls for the handsome idiot played perfectly by William Hurt. Bros does not copy that storyline because Aaron, my love interest in bros, is not a handsome idiot. Um, he's very handsome, but he's not an idiot. So this is not just, you know, gay broadcast news by any means. But I did love the idea that a really strong-willed, self-reliant, self-possessed person like that, who was so accomplished in every area of her life, could fall apart over falling in love with a guy unexpectedly. We haven't really seen that play out among gay men in particular. And that idea, I thought, could be very funny and also very moving. It's funny because as much as you and I clearly love broadcast news, if there is a fault with the film, it's that its depiction of metropolitan life is pretty much absent of queer characters or people of color. Although I would, I would say for that time, what was that, 1986 or something, mm -hmm. 87, I think it came out, I think the fact that it probably centered on this very strong-willed woman probably felt like progress at the time, which it was. Um, but yeah, when you go watch those movies from the 80s, and I love all those New York rom-coms, you know, Moonstruck and Working Girl and Annie Hall and Harry Met Sally, but I would not say diversity is one of their strengths. I love all those movies too. But with Bros, you've really put the LGBTQ plus community at the center. In writing the script and then hiring the cast and crew, how focused were you on redefining how these films are made? Well, no one wants to make any strict rules about, oh, a straight actor can play gay and a gay actor can play straight. I mean, you know, it's art, right? Art is a liberating force and we don't want any rules when it comes to art and culture. However, art is not created in a vacuum. Historically, in Hollywood, especially when it comes to major studios, what you see is far, far more often than not, straight actors being given the most high-profile, heavily marketed, 
most accessible in terms of the reach that the movies get, the amount of theaters they play in, the press that it gets. You know, all those roles, not all, but the vast majority of them have been given to straight actors, right? To play LGBTQ roles. When you look at the history of the Academy Awards, so many straight actors and actresses have been nominated and won for playing LGBTQ characters and almost always a tortured LGBTQ character. It's always in some tragedy. It's always defined by struggle and torment over being LGBTQ. It's never something that's fun or funny or joyful or triumphant. And all we were trying to do with bros by casting all LGBTQ actors, not only in the LGBTQ roles, but in the straight roles as well, is to just take this opportunity and help to not make any strict religious rules about casting, but just to correct that imbalance a little bit. Because no one's saying that Sean Penn wasn't incredible in Milk. No one's saying that Heath Ledger wasn't beautiful in Brokeback Mountain. Those are great performances. No one's arguing with the quality of the performances. It's just that we never get to play ourselves in the more high-profile movies that are inspired by our struggles and our joy and our lives. And I, with bros, thought, you know what? I'm an openly gay man. I've been openly gay as an actor and a comedian for over 20 years since I started out, and the business was very different. You know, for the vast majority of my career, it was implied to me or told directly to my face that not that I couldn't be a working actor and be openly gay at this point, but that there'd be a ceiling for what I could do and for the types of roles I'd be allowed to play that would be limited, you know, by my choice to be open about who I am. And I thought, okay, well, now I'm getting to make a movie and it's about a gay couple and there are a lot of LGBTQ characters and a bunch of straight characters. And so we're going to turn the tables on that for once and we're going to flip that script because we've seen the other thing for decades, you know, the spectacle everyone seems to love of an actor a famous actor we all know is straight, transforming, quote unquote, themselves into a tortured, closeted, bereft, you know, LGBTQ character. You know, we've seen it. This was a chance to flip the script. And I think that's one of the most fresh and exciting things about the movie. And it also, it allowed us to poke fun at ourselves. Bros is a comedy, a hard R-rated comedy. We never sat down and said, let's make a historic LGBTQ movie. Never. It's true. So much of the discussion around this movie has nothing to do with the storytelling aspects or how funny it is. That's in large part because you are the first openly gay man to co-write and star in a major studio film of any genre, which in 2022 sounds impossible given that we've had two movies about the secret life of pets before one movie about an openly gay couple. Yes, we've had two movies about an animated talking hedgehog before <laughs> we had a rom-com about gay guys. On the, I should I should reiterate, on the major studio level, being released in movie theaters. There's obviously a long history of these movies on streaming and even before streaming indie films. I mean, I grew up with all of those queer romantic comedies, which did play in movie theaters, at least in New York where I grew up. So I was lucky I had access to them. And Bros certainly would not exist 
without all those filmmakers and artists and actors making those movies happen and uh, on, on low budget sometimes and with not a lot of marketing support and certainly with very, very little support from the straight powers that be in the industry. And um, But yeah, it is strange to think that this is the first of its kind in certain ways that are a bit shocking, you know? And again, we didn't sit down to write something historic. You know, we didn't even realize there were any historic statistics attached to it when we were writing the movie. We just thought, like, what's the funniest movie that we can make? We want to make a movie that really makes people laugh out loud start to finish, that feels honest and authentic and moves people just the way all those romantic comedies I grew up with did but there were never gay people in them. We weren't even the best friend at that point. You mentioned some of those films that you watched growing up. For context, you come of age in Forest Hills in Queens in a tiny Junior Four apartment. Your father, Jay, was a rent tax auditor. Your mom, Debbie, worked for a New York phone company. Both of them loved the arts and took you to shows like Guys and Dolls on Broadway, Bette Midler at Radio City Music Hall, Barbara Streisand at MSG. But do you remember a performance or a film that felt like a window into this world of acting? Wow, I would have to think about that. There were so many. I mean, I was so lucky. Uh, the luckiest thing is that my parents were so wonderful and so supportive. You know, I didn't come out officially until I was in college years later. But I mean, this was the 80s and the early 90s. They knew I was gay. You know, I mean, it seemed likely. Um, was it the Bon Jovi poster on the wall? Lo- yes, I had a, I've had a picture of John Bon Jovi, a poster of John Bon Jovi on my wall. I was in love with John Bon Jovi. He was one of my first crushes. Um, I literally had like that and a poster of Madonna. And, you know, I was a kid. I could sing really well. That was my first kind of foray into performing because once the the teachers in my elementary school in Queens realized I could sing. You know, there aren't that many boys in Queens that open their mouths and can sing well. So I immediately became the lead in all the musicals based on that alone. And luckily for me, my parents also loved theater. They loved concerts, you know. And so we had this overlap because we we all loved, you know, live music, theatrical experiences. And we went to the movies every Saturday night. There was a period of my life, probably from between the age of like, I don't know, 10 and 15 when I stopped wanting to see my parents as much um, as a teenager, but where we went to the movies every Saturday night, almost every Saturday night, regardless of whether there was even something we really wanted to see. And they took me to see, I was an obsessive Madonna fan as a kid. I mean, I was a gay boy growing up in the 80s. And I mean, I still love her, but you know. What's the but you know? Um, Well, I mean, I'm an adult now, so I don't obsess over (laughs) any single celebrity or artist the way I did as a child. But that's the but, you know, Um, not even Meryl Streep. I mean, I love Meryl, but the (laughs) the, you know, the Billy on the street obsession with Meryl is is, of course, we all love and worship Meryl. But of course, I'm taking it to comedic heights for the purpose of comedy. But I remember going to see all those great romantic comedies I grew up with with my parents. I mean, I really can. I don't know. Maybe I just have a really weird memory for things. But I remember we saw a sneak preview. If you're old enough to remember, the studios used to do something called sneak previews where a week before a movie officially opened, they would show it one time on like a Friday or Saturday night. 
to sort of test it for audiences. I remember I saw the sneak preview of When Harry Met Sally. I saw Moonstruck in the theater with my parents and Pretty Woman. I saw Dirty Dancing in the theater twice. I remember where I was when we saw Sleepless in Seattle and Working Girl. And, you know, when, when I got older, you've got mail, my best friend's wedding. And, you know, but those really stayed with me. And so you're, you're, is there a specific performance, a specific film performance? Um, interestingly enough, I, you know, and this does connect to bros. I remember, as we all do, but I remember really loving Tom Hanks in Big and Sleepless in Seattle as well. And there were live performances, too, that really struck me and really stayed with me. Like I had been a Bette Midler fan as a kid, but. As any Bette Midler fan knows, seeing her live is a totally different experience. And I saw her live for the first time. That show, her live show, had such a theatricality to it. And she's a type of entertainer that, I don't know, when that generation of performers passes, and hopefully they'll still be with us a really long time, but I don't know who's there to take their place or even if there is an appreciation for that level of versatility because she could be so funny and she was telling jokes and raunchy jokes one second and then breaking your heart with a beautiful, raw ballad the next second. I was a kid, I remember seeing that show and just literally like leaning in, in my seat. So that definitely stayed with me. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. 
Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You take all of that enthusiasm for Bette Midler, Tom Hanks, and a few others, and bring it with you to Northwestern, where you major in theater. Once you graduate from college, after doing a lot of checkoff and ecstasy. <laughs> That's true. Not at the same time, just to be clear. Well, <laughs> can't say for sure. <laughs> well, you know, neither confirm nor deny. No matter, you graduate college, move to New York City, and try to make it as an actor. You do what most people have to do in this profession, which is lots of auditioning, taking work where you can find it in off-Broadway productions. But by your mid-20s, it's not working out as you imagined. You have this quote where you said, You don't sit there as a kid thinking, I could be the star of this movie if only I wasn't gay. I went to see Steve Martin and Tom Hanks movies and thought I could do something like that. It was only when I was in my mid-twenties when I started to think, oh, I guess I'll be lucky if I can just play the neighbor on a sitcom, because that's what Hollywood was telling me. How loud was that voice telling you that you could only do a certain kind of role? It wasn't an internal voice. I never believed that about myself. I always knew that that wasn't the truth. It was the message I was getting from other people in the industry. From who? Oh, various managers agents, TV executives. Sometimes that message was sent in subtle ways. Sometimes it was sent in very overt ways. 
sometimes I didn't even recognize it as being homophobic or however you want to describe it because I just wasn't used to that. <laughs> like, you know, my parents always supported me. I grew up in New York City, which gives one a very kind of skewed perspective on the world. You know, I grew up going to see these Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows, many of which, not many, but, you know, occasionally they would feature gay characters. And it was no big deal because Broadway, of course, and theater in New York has always been a few steps ahead in terms of LGBTQ inclusiveness. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it was way ahead of like mainstream film and TV. And that's what I grew up watching. So I just would have never have assumed that was going to be an obstacle. And yet when I started to play with the big boys and TV and films and uh, try to make my way in that world outside of this sort of comfortable <laughs> New York bubble, it became an issue. But what was I going to do? I, I just always thought it was so ridiculous and I was never going to be in the closet. It just never made sense to me. You know, in the early 2000s, I'd go on comedy stages in New York and talk about being gay and talk about gay sex and things that I think felt really surprising at the time even to maybe gay audiences who weren't really used to hearing it as as much as we are now. But that's the creative decision I made. That's the ethical decision I made. And that's what made sense to me. And it was always shocking to me that other people had a problem with that. It was so, so bizarre. You know, if you don't think I'm talented enough, that's fine. That I can accept. If you don't think I'm funny enough, that I can accept. But you think I'm talented and you think I'm funny and you think I'm brilliant and all these adjectives they would throw at me, but you're not going to employ me because I sleep with guys. That is so silly. But that's really how people thought for the <laughs> vast majority of Hollywood history up until literally a handful of years ago. Wasn't making your variety show Creation Nation your way of platforming yourself before anyone else would? Of course. I mean, you know, for many artists, we've all had to take matters into our own hands. And for me, it started with that live show that I did, which is where the Billy on the Street video started, even before YouTube became a thing. Those Billy on the Street videos I originally made to show on a screen in whichever theater I was performing my live show. And the live show was a, a variety show where I was the only act. <laughs> that was kind of how I described it, where I got to do stand up and sketches and I would rant and rave and there was also a band and I would write songs, funny songs and sing them. And we also did videos, uh, different types of videos, spoofs of whatever TV shows were happening at the time. And, and then also what became known as Billy on the Street videos. That's where it started. And it did take the internet to give me a platform where I could show the powers that be in Hollywood that I'm popular. People like me. It's not just a gay thing. It's not a New York thing. It's not too edgy. It's not too crazy. It's not too loud. Of course, it's not for everyone, but you don't need to be for everyone. No one's for everyone except super boring, basic people. I didn't want to be that anyway. And so, you know, once I started putting my videos online, I could point to the numbers. The numbers don't lie. That's not true. Sometimes numbers do lie, actually. But in this case, <laughs> I could point to the numbers and say, look, because that's all fear, you know, when they think you're to this or to that, or they like you as a talent, but they won't give you a job. That's all fear. They're scared of losing their own job. They're scared of taking a chance on the wrong person, you know, and then having their bosses say to them, see, you took a chance on that crazy guy from New York and we knew it was to this and we knew it was to that and you're fired. 
right? That's what they're scared of. But often LGBTQ, openly LGBTQ creative people, comedians, actors, actresses, we were sort of turned into victims of that type of thinking for so many years. But yeah, I got to the internet. Social media is the ultimate double-edged sword. You know, it really is. But one of the great things about it is that it does democratize entertainment. I'm not the only one. There are many examples of people who went to the internet to make a name for themselves. And once they did, the industry took notice. And then that gave the industry power brokers confidence that they could take a chance on me. And they did. And Billy on the Street moved to TV. Well, since you keep talking about these videos, why don't we play a clip from the first video you uploaded to YouTube in October of 2006? Amazing. All right, Arsenova, we're on the street right now. We're going to ask real people what they think about the real issues of the day. Robin? Let's go. Miss, miss, any thoughts on global warming? It's hot. It's hot? <laughs> what is global warming? Is it cold or is it hot? It's hot. Miss, miss, are you concerned about high gas prices? No. Thank you. Any final thoughts on Tom Hanks? Oh, I know he's a very good actor. And I'm always amazed when people can play the role of a totally different person. Well, that's what acting is. Right, so why be amazed? I still am amazed because some people don't succeed at doing that. Right. I think Tom Hanks does. He's wonderful. I, I think I... He should be president, right? Well, don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> I won't put anything in your mouth. <laughs> wow, you are really taking me back. My God. I mean, I haven't heard that in so long. But I remember the reaction that got from the crowd. I mean, people were falling out of their seats. And now there's a lot of stuff like that because, you know, not that I've been such a great influence or anything. Maybe I've been a terrible influence. But, you know, there are a lot of copycats and things like that. Um, and I certainly did not invent men on the street by any means. But I certainly did a unique take on it. And people, even from the first time I, would sh I showed that video, even in a very raw, probably poorly edited form, they just loved it. It was, it shocked me how much they loved it. Why do you think they did? I think it's surprising. It's real. You know, you can't argue with the honesty of it. They're not scripted. I think sort of the attitude that I bring to it is unique. And then the way that the New Yorkers sort of react to it. Um, sometimes <laughs> they're shocked by me. Sometimes they give, they throw it right back in my face as only a, a New Yorker could. Those are some of the more popular clips, you know, they don't put up with my bullshit. I think different people get different things out of it is the truth. You know, Billy on the Street, really, that persona, that character is a satire of my own ridiculously passionate feeling about the entertainment industry, especially going back to when I was a kid and a teenager. I was so obsessed with it and I loved it so much and I obsessed over things like the Oscars and actresses and not the gossip stuff. I never really cared about personal lives of actors, but I loved the movies themselves and the performances and the choices actors would make. And I did love award shows. That's true. So Billy on the Street was my way of both celebrating that relationship with entertainment and poking fun at it. That segment we just heard was clearly a precursor to Billy on the Street. When you go to L.A. and you sort of present this larger idea of what Billy on the Street could be, it seems clear right from the jump that people were interested, they liked it, and this turn was happening in your life where 
It felt like you were making ground in the way that you always dreamed of. And yet at the same moment, I know that your father was diagnosed with leukemia. And you have this quote, you said, I was very freaked out. My dad was always my emotional, financial, everything safety net. And when I look back on that time, I wondered when that net disappears, how did you handle such a profound loss at a time where another part of your life was going so well? Yeah, the timing of it will never cease to amaze me because I had, you know, my dad, who was so supportive, watched me struggle for years to try to get paying work, regular paying work on TV or film or something, anything at that point. And I would get an occasional gig here and there, but not enough. And it was very frustrating for him because I was getting all this press in New York. The New York Times wrote a profile on me in 2005. I think they wrote multiple articles about me, always very complimentary. And there were magazines writing about me. And yet that press and that acclaim and that respect was not translating into paying work. It was very frustrating and, and confusing and and difficult. You know, you're in your 20s and you're struggling and it's cute and everyone struggles in their 20s. You get to your 30s and it stops being so cute, you know? Mike Farrett, Funnier Die, contacted me because he loved my videos that he was seeing online. And I went to see him in LA and I said, I have an idea to turn this into a more long-form TV show. And what Mike said to me, which was very smart, was because I said to him, I want to turn these Billy on the Street videos into more of a game show structure, not a real game show, but just to give out small cash and prizes, you know, for people that engage with me, which is where for a dollar came from. And Mike loved it. And he said, okay, but in order for someone to buy this, they're going to have to see it for themselves with their eyes. They're going to have to see how it works as a quote unquote quasi pseudo game show. It's not enough just to show them your existing videos, which didn't have a game element and say, but picture it as a game because he said the executives, some of them would not have the imagination to do that. And no one knew who I was. So it would be a risk. So he gave me a little production money to go and film what they call a sizzle reel, basically record a version of Billy on the Street that had a bit more of that game show-like structure, a very loose structure, but something, right? And so he gave me the resources to go make that. And in between making that sizzle reel, as they call it, and going out to pitch it and selling it, my father died. And he died literally a month before we pitched and sold the show. We shot this show the first season, summer of that year. And then it was on, the first episode aired in December of that year, all within the same calendar year. After so many years of struggling, he just missed it. And that is just bizarre timing. I mean, what can you even make of that? And that's life sometimes. So how did I get through it? I mean, to be honest, I was so sad and stressed when he died that the fact that we sold the show honestly it just came as a huge relief and it was also you know it was it was a happy thing it was an exciting thing and i knew he would be really excited even though him just missing it was completely insane and unfair but you know we forged ahead and i knew it was a huge opportunity i knew it had to be good i worked as hard as i could on that first season and we got good reviews you know, it started to get buzz and then over time really snowballed into uh, a phenomenon, especially on social media. The timing of it was truly inexplicably strange. Well, the way you go on, as far as I can tell, is by making 
Billy on the Street, and then eventually this new film of yours, which is such a cultural achievement. And yet I can't help but return to this especially personal and tender moment in the movie. It's about an hour in when your character Bobby is opening up to his new partner on a beach in Provincetown. It's there that he recounts all the people who told him that being gay would derail his ambitions. And you have these lines. I just want to read for a second. You say, I spent years watching a wave of mediocre straight men passing me by. Men with half the talent, who worked half as hard, who didn't care as much as I did and got twice as far. Always. And you know, yeah, the world caught up with us, but it didn't catch up fast enough. Didn't catch up fast enough for my parents to see all these great things happen for me. It doesn't catch up for a lot of people. That's the truth. And even in my reading of that scene, and I'll admit I'm not as good of an actor as you are, I found it so moving. And I wondered how you hold this achievement that is this film with the fact that your parents aren't here to see it. How I hold that? I'm obviously sad that they're not here to see it. But bros, for me, when I take a bird's eye view of why I was able to hold on so long and why I believed in myself, you know, Billy on the Street was just the first step. Then I had to prove to people that I'm more than Billy on the Street. Because like I said, I started out as an actor. I went to Northwestern. I just wanted to be an actor. You know, Broadway, film, TV, whatever it was. And I stumbled literally and figuratively into Billy on the Street. And I'm grateful for it. And I love it. I'm very proud of it. It's a self-created thing. My big break was self-created. I'm very proud of that. At the same time, it's not easy to be Billy on the Street and then try to get people to see you as more than that. It's such a loud, over-the-top, one-dimensional persona, a joyful one. It makes people really happy, and it makes me really happy, and I'm very grateful for it. But it's still, it's not all that I can do, and it's not all I wanted to do. I love to act. I want to play three-dimensional people. I think it's important that we put as many three-dimensional gay characters into the world as possible. And I see now, taking a bird's eye view, that all comes back to how much my parents loved and supported me and encouraged me and believed in me. My parents also thought I could be Tom Hanks <laughs> if I wanted to. Hollywood didn't up until a few months ago. And I'm not saying I'm Tom Hanks. But it all comes back to the foundation of it being how much they loved me and how much they believed I could make it. And so as sad as it is that they're not here to see it, and of course it's awful, but I'm an adult. I'm a 43-year-old man. I'll be 44 when bros comes out. What does that mean, I'm an adult? I'm an adult means that, you know, parents die. Mine died, especially my mom, younger than some do, but they were so great that it's hard to be sad about it. Look, there are, there are kids who lose their parents when they're five years old. I lost my mom when I was 20, lost my dad when I was, what, 32. I mean, the, the, the sad part of it is that I wasn't successful until after. But they knew me. They got me. They understood me. They loved me. And that's why I made it this far. I mainly, when I think about them, think about how lucky I was. To be honest, I know that sounds a bit 
Pollyanna-ish. I'm not trying to, but that's really how it feels. Like I could dwell on the sadness of it, but mostly I'm like, oh my God, thank God I had them. That's why I'm me. Really great parents like that, that's a gift. So I think about that. It seems uh, that so much of them is in you and, and so much of their support has propelled you forward in all of this to this very moment where the film is coming out, which is a cause for celebration. And it seems like there's one day in particular where the totality of this project, of this larger cultural moment, hits you. It was last fall, near the end of filming. There's a day on set where you're shooting a walk and talk scene on the Upper West Side where it all comes together. What happened? There's a scene where Luke and I are, Luke plays um, my boyfriend, and, you know, we're shooting these scenes. We're walking around Central Park on the Upper West Side, and it was beautiful, and the sun was shining, and, you know, we're making witty banter, as one does in a rom-com, and it looked and felt like all those romantic comedies I grew up loving and watching, when Harry Met Sally and Annie Hall and, you know, Working Girl and Moonstruck and... And all those movies that I loved where people are walking around Manhattan <laughs> and they're making witty banter. But it was me. And we're a gay male couple. There's a huge crew and a real budget. And it was being shot beautifully. It just hit me that I got here somehow and that I not only got here, but that I was able to do it on my own terms, which is really rare. You know, I know... Luke felt the same way too. The whole cast, we had such a good time making the movie. You hear about movies with a lot of drama on set. We were all so delighted. We all come from different corners of the community. We all come from different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, different generations. You have everyone in this movie from one of the funniest breakout stars of the past few years, Bowen Yang, to Harvey Firestein, who was such a groundbreaking, iconic LGBTQ star who really broke ground. Everyone is represented. And every day, we, I think we'd all look at each other and just, we knew how lucky we are and how rare this is. And, you know, we didn't go around patting ourselves on the back about like making history or whatever it is. We mainly wanted to make people laugh. And that is what the movie is more than anything. You don't watch the bros and you're like, wow, this is historic. You're like, I mean, I hope people are like, wow, this is really fucking funny. Like, I haven't laughed out loud this much at a movie, straight, gay, in a long time. And it's romantic and it's uplifting. It's a feel-good movie. What's great about romantic comedies is that they make you feel good. It's like, there's that's not a, that shouldn't be a guilty pleasure. Then it all hit me in that moment on the Upper West Side, outside of Central Park, that we were getting to make a movie like that. And that this one's about a gay couple. It's a long time coming. And, you know, I hope, people are as excited about it as we are. My last question for you, because we've talked so personally about you and your work in this conversation, but I want to leave on a big picture idea. In 2016, Amy Poehler described you and your work as having an outsider quality. She said this in The New Yorker. Poehler, of course, brought you into Parks and Recreation. She executive produced your show, Difficult People. But Six years later, as Bros opens in over 3,000 theaters across the country, do you see yourself the way Amy and probably many others in Hollywood have historically seen you as an outsider? I have to say I was made to feel like an outsider more than I actually felt like an outsider. I always dreamed big. 
Like when I went to the movies with my parents as a kid and I saw Tom Hanks in Big and said, oh my God, I love that guy. I want to be like that guy. Even when I got older and saw Will Ferrell in Elf, I watch it every year and it makes people so happy and makes you laugh and it delights you and it comforts you and it warms you up. I thought, I want to do that. I can do that. There's no reason why I can't do that. And then it was outside forces saying, "Mm, well, probably not because dot, dot, dot. And I was like, always just like, fuck you. And sure, it leads to moments of self-doubt or, you know, moments that all artists have for various reasons, straight, gay, queer, whatever you are, I'm sure. But ultimately, I would get up and say, fuck you. That's not going to stop me. That is not going to stop me. I'm going to keep going. And maybe you don't see it. Maybe this agent doesn't see it. Maybe the studio exec doesn't see it. Maybe this person assumes the audience doesn't want me or whatever. But I have to believe that they're wrong. And that's the attitude that I always had. And again, it comes down to my parents. It's because my parents let me know, made me feel like it was all going to be okay. So in terms of being an outsider, I don't know. I guess it's an easy way to categorize me in kind of a stereotypical way. But why should I be seen as an outsider? Who's to say what's outside, who belongs outside and who belongs inside? We have to be careful not to paint such broad strokes like, oh, you're LGBTQ, you're an outsider. Did the, did the industry, the powers that be, think of me that way? Yes. In my heart, did I feel like, oh, I'm some like weirdo on the outside of things? No, I didn't. You know, I want to entertain people. That's it. Funny is funny. Funny is funny is funny. <laughs> that doesn't mean everyone agrees on what's funny, but your sexuality doesn't determine whether straight people or gay people think you're funny or not. The whole thing is so silly to even sit around and talk about. Like, we're such an unevolved fucking culture in some ways. Now I'm getting angry. I'll calm down. But I was never going to let that stop me. Bros is proof that it didn't. And and I am very, very grateful. And I'm very, very lucky. And the thing I think about constantly and what I'm alluding to in that monologue on the beach, too, is not only my own personal experience, is that there are so many LGBTQ folks and marginalized people in general who Hollywood did see as outsiders, quote unquote, who got branded with that and who did not get the opportunities that I'm getting. And they were more talented than me. I'm sure they were just as driven, had just as much of a desire. They just weren't allowed to. And that is fucked up. Bros is a celebratory moment. And again, it's a comedy first and foremost, but let's not forget that. Because there are so many people before me who should have gotten to make big, beautiful, funny major studio films like this and gotten to have that experience of me with this huge crane shot on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I got that experience and I'm very lucky and I hope people love it and celebrate it so that we have more of these types of movies. But there are lots of people who should have gotten the experience that I'm getting and they didn't. Well... If uh, this movie does what we hope it does, perhaps they will. I hope so. Straight people, if you're listening, go see bros. We need your support. You know, I think there's a feeling out there that like, oh, gay stories are just for gay people. But it's so silly. LGBTQ folks have been going to see movies about straight people falling in love since the beginning of Hollywood. Right. And so we need everyone to help us flip the script and have fun doing it. We'll be sure to turn that last part up even louder for the straight people. 
listening to the show. Thanks. Louder for the straight people in the back, as the kids say. <laughs> Billy Eichner, this has been a true pleasure. Thank you for sitting with me. Thanks, Sam. Was that all right? I loved it. I loved it. You were wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for um, paying such close attention to the movie. It means a lot to me. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Monique Nancaro and Sydney Navarez at Slate PR, Tina Wool at Universal Pictures, and of course, Billy Eichner. You can see Bros out in theaters this Friday, September 30th. If you want to learn more about Billy and his work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I imagine you would enjoy our talks with T.S. Madison, Ethan Hawke, Abby Jacobson, John Early, Pedro Pascal, Jenny Slate, and Kate Blanchett. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support us by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the program with a friend. The second best thing, review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you do your listening. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy, video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday with a very special bonus episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at t-mobile.com unconventional awards. See you there.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.